0: No. Oh, yeah, so this is Moncton Rio, um, we meet on a monthly basis, typically people will invite people to kind of come and do a presentation, whether it be accountants or lawyers or somebody with some type of specialty. Um, today we have Dave coming in. Um, for those of you that aren't on the, the Rio list, feel free to shoot us an email at monctonrio at gmail.com. Rio is R E I O. Somebody uh, else here? Uh, I will It'd find be- it. Let's see. Okay. You could also give me kind of like hostability, that way we could have more people doing it at the same time. It's up to you. Anyways, uh, we got Dave here today. Uh, Dave used to be the vice president of Moncton Rio. You guys could hear me right now, eh?
1: Yeah.
0: yeah yeah so I, I would have met you probably when I first joined so that would have been back in maybe 2007 or eight is that that would have been about the time frame that you were uh, the I was
1: trying to think about it today and I believe it was about 2007 and and it w- I started it with Darlene who was just recently the Tory candidate for Moncton in the election here that just passed yeah, yeah. so it was it was fif- like 15 years ago close to um, that we got together and started to, to host these meetings and eventually ended up at Sobeys.
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sobeys was, uh, it was a good time. I think when I went to the first one, you guys were hosting it at the, um, the hotel there, you had buddy coming in from Ottawa doing the rent to own pitch.
1: That was a long time ago.
0: (laughs) And that would have been, yeah, 2007, right. When I started getting involved in real estate Anyways, I'll uh, I'll pass the floor over to you there, but maybe you got yourself your own introduction that you want to run with. Uh,
1: Sure. Um, I know, uh, Sean, you had sent out uh, my bio. Um, I I started, you know, in business here in Moncton as a real estate investor, and then I eventually got into brokering commercial debt. And. But you can. I got into. Yeah, I imagine you can successfully remove it. So if I want to- Hold on one second. Let me check something. Are you, uh, are you in gallery mode, Sean? So you can yeah. see everybody all at once? I'm switching
0: to that. This is a, you high. know, I mean- It's, it's, it's
1: Eve Boudreau. There you go. Okay. So, okay. Um, so yeah. So so I eventually got into bro- being a commercial debt broker. Um, and so I was helping people with business loans, capital and, and operating leases, factoring of accounts receivable, that kind of thing. And increasingly I was getting visited by people who were interested in trying to figure out how to get financing to buy operating businesses. And um, boy, did I ever see a lot of really crazy things because um, in New Brunswick anyway, to sell a business as a going concern, uh, you need to have a real estate license. And there are some real estate agents who believe that that makes them qualified. And so I saw some, some really crazy things happened. I saw people lose deposits on deals. I saw deals done without any consideration to operating capital, um, all kinds of problems going on. And I realized that uh, there was definitely a need. I, I ran into the financial crisis there in 07, 08, and about three quarters of the companies I was using as my sort of B lenders. And primarily, I was doing deals with people who couldn't get money at the bank. So people would go to their business, small business bank person down on main street and uh, be told no for a loan. And, and I made a lot of contacts down there and, and, you know, someone at the big red bank knows that if you, if you tell uh, a business person, no, you can't have the money, they're going to go visit the big green bank or the big blue bank. Right. And so if the, if they will make the loan, then all the other business the person has is going to go across the street to the other bank. And so I would, You know, suggest to these bankers that if they couldn't do the business deal, that maybe I could place it with another kind of lender and it would keep the rest of their business safe. So people who wanted money for equipment, for example, and they couldn't do it at the bank, maybe I could get a leasing company to do a deal. And so I started working on all these deals. The financial crisis hit about three quarters of my sources of capital went under. Um, If you remember the term asset backed commercial paper, a lot of the lenders that I was working with were basically making loans, taking that loan, putting it into a pool, and then selling pieces of that pool. And that's what the, the, the loans I was helping to create were the assets that were backing the commercial paper, which is what was being sold on Wall Street. And when that whole market imploded, those companies you know, weren't available anymore as financing sources. And so I had to make a pivot. And I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get into this business brokerage thing because I, I see that there's a need. So I got involved with a big international franchise chain, primarily because it opened the door to access for training. And so I spent three years and made three different trips, week-long trips, uh, one to Ottawa, one to Atlanta, and one to Orlando. And I became the first person in New Brunswick to, to obtain the what's called the CBI designation back in 2010, which has been around since the 70s. And I was the first person in the province to ever get it. And so it just goes to show just how far behind our market is with respect to a lot of this deal-making stuff. And I'll tell you guys why. Um, Down in the States, um, in their tax code, they have a provision where if you sell a certain asset, like if you own, you guys are all real estate guys, if you own a four-unit apartment building and you sell it, and then you took all of the proceeds of that sale and put it into an eight unit apartment building within a 6 month period you could defer the prop, the capital gains that you would have achieved on the first sale and so people are incentivized to trade in like investments and so they can keep rolling their money into a bigger and bigger investment deferring the capital gains until they get to the very end and they're older and they sell their last investment. And then, they're, then they face the capital gains throughout the course of that chain, all the way back to the beginning. And people can do this with buildings and they can do it with businesses too. So in the States, business brokers are very busy because people will buy a small business. They'll grow it over a couple of years, pay down the debts, improve the business. Then they'll come and they'll sell it, take the money and put it into a bigger one. And so when I was talking with business brokers down the States, I would you know, they would tell me about their regular customers, people that would come back every two or three years, much like people here will come every few years to keep upgrading their primary residence because we can do that capital gains free um, for, our own, for our own selves individually. P- people down there can do this for businesses and investment properties. So, but that's not what happens here. And so there are a lot fewer transactions that happen here. And for the most part in Canada, if you have a good profitable business, it never makes ever it never ever makes any sense to sell it, ever, unless you need to. So there usually has to be a pressing personal reason why somebody can no longer carry out the business. They tend to fall into five different categories. The, the five biggest reasons are boredom, burnout, and you know just someone's tired of it, um, and they know that they don't have the the energy and the, the enthusiasm to keep it running. And if you own a business and you don't have enthusiasm and drive and, and the right energy behind you, it'll rub off on the staff, which will rub off on the employees and it'll rub off on the bottom line. Eventually the business will become tired. And we've all walked into a business where nobody seen, where we can feel the energy that nobody seems to want to be there that day. Right. And you walk into another business where everyone's excited and happy and they want to serve you and they're perky. And you're like, yeah, I like to be in this space, right? That's the place I want to do my business. And so burnout and boredom is number one. Then there's divorce, poor health, the need to relocate and retirement. And retirement is the only one of those five that people actually plan for. So 80% of the time when a small business goes up for sale, it's not planned for. And somebody basically realizes I can't carry on in this business anymore. I need to find someone to buy it. And so Um, I started up in business brokerage, joined an office here in Moncton that was back in 2008 by 2009, I had bought the office and I ran it until the end of 2011, sold 36 companies. Um, and if you looked at the financial statements of my business brokerage, you would say, wow, what an incredible business David is growing by double digit percentages year over year. And that would not have told you the whole story because the reality of that business is that every one of those years had a stretch of seven to nine months without a deal closing. And business brokerage is kind of like real estate in that it's driven by commissions. And so I would end up, you know, up to my neck in debt with credit cards and lines of credit, and then I would close a deal and it would just pay off my debts. And it was really hard to get ahead and it was really hard to make any kind of plan as far as a household budget or whatnot. And so at the end of 2011, uh, I threw in the towel and I quit and I, I sold the office in a deal to one of my colleagues that I had in, in the office, one of my associates. And I went and joined the bank and I worked there for a few years. And what happened at the bank is that people kept calling me and they're like, Dave, I'm trying to do this deal. I'm trying to buy a business. I'm trying to sell a business. And I would say to people, I don't do that anymore. And eventually this guy, Bob was his name, said, Dave, I really need your help on this deal. My lawyer's telling me I need a certain outcome in this deal. My accountant's telling me I need certain outcomes in this deal, but neither of them seems to be able to really advise me on how to stick handle in this negotiation and what things I'm supposed to be looking for, et cetera, et cetera. Can you help me? And I said, Bob, I I can help you, but I don't do it anymore. I would have to charge you as though I were some kind of consultant, an hourly rate, and I have a full-time job. And he said, great, where do you live? I'll come see you on Saturday. (laughs) And so that was the beginning of a little side hustle consulting business, which eventually grew. And when the bank reorganized, they wanted to get rid of a few people. I raised my hand and they gave me a package. And I've been on my own just as an independent consultant ever since. And that has branched off into me uh, writing books and creating online courses. And it's driven in large part by my YouTube channel where every week I release a new video where, which, are, which are driven by questions that people submit. And so um, so I talk all the time, all day long about buying and selling, managing and financing small and medium-sized businesses. And I like to use the term main street businesses because and all, there's, there's no strict definition that we use to describe the different sizes of businesses. You know, the government talks about number of employees typically Um, Some people talk about revenue. I like to talk about cash flow. So to me, a main street business is a business that has a cash flow under half a million dollars. And so you could be a service business with, you know, a million dollars in revenue, and you're going to be under that half a million dollars of cash flow. You could also be a fuel oil distributor with $20 million of revenue, but still be under that half a million dollars of cash flow because so much of the money that comes in just goes right back out you know, to your suppliers because you've got such a thin margin in that business. And so that cash flow indicator um, of about half a million dollars is important for a couple of reasons. Below that half a million dollar line, typically your businesses are owner managed for the, for the most part. And above that line, you have a whole other different category of buyers, the people that are more investment or money people. So this is where you get private investment groups, private equity groups. They can buy a business that has more than a half a million dollar cash flow, and there's enough money there for them to pay a professional manager to come in and run that investment for them. And so below the half million dollar line, we get lower valuation multiples, We get typically owner-operators. We get more, if you've ever read E-Myth by Michael Gerber, we get more of the technician kind of businesses that are in that under 500,000 category. And above that, we get our quote-unquote more real businesses with structures and processes and procedures and maybe even professional managers and owners that are not there every day. Um, where, Where would you like to go, Sean, with this conversation today? I know you had one question submitted.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear your background and I think anybody who knows you knows that you're the guy to call to help them with buying or selling a business. It's It's been that way for me since I've known you. And like you said, when you were into the industry in 2008. Um, yeah. So obviously you touched on like uh, the tax implications and why like businesses trade over in the States a little bit more. Do, do you find yourself working internationally or does your license only allow for...
1: Uh, so... Because I'm a consultant, I'm not, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't act at, in any kind of agency capacity anywhere. And so I don't have any kind of license. So I don't write up contracts for people or anything like that. So people get me to come in and help them look at a business that they found that they want to buy. And I help them analyze the deal and, and show them what a business like that should be worth and what a reasonable offer might be. And if someone wants to sell, I'll go through the same kind of process of showing them what their business may be worth, et cetera. I think it would be interesting, for example, to talk about how businesses are valued vis-a-vis real estate. Since everyone, you know, in this group is a, is a real estate investor. <clears throat> in the world of real estate investing, we often use cap rates, right? In order to determine the value of a property. So what would you say is a, you know, sort of a, a, a common kind of cap rate that you would see around here these days?
0: It's pushing downwards actually. So now it would be probably like in the 6.5 range, but because the market's so hot, I find it's often that things are selling at a 5.5, but they're appraising at a 6.5. Okay.
1: that's so, here. so let's say that things are selling at a 5.5 cap rate. That would mean that if you owned a, an income property and you did something to improve the, the, the property <clears throat> and you got an extra $100 of income out of that property. So $100 divided by 0.055. Did I do the math right?
0: Yeah, I just always use the percentage.
1: But no. Okay, well, well, that would give me 1818. So improving the cash flow of the property by $100 would increase its value by close to $2,000, yep. okay? And so this is why in the world of real estate investing we have people who will buy something, improve it in some way, get it operating better, and then when they sell there's this big, you know, opportunity. Usually you're talking about some kind of renovation, right? So you've invested something to get the business the building to work better, and then you get this big bump in value. The person who's looking at buying that building, they're looking at this cash flow as a long-term stream of income. It would be very rare for a building owner to have 100% vacancy in one month, right? We have a certain turnover, but we're always going to have some revenue. And so people will expect to have that income for a long time. And this is why they're willing to accept a cap rate like 5.5%, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to business, business is a whole lot riskier than owning something tangible and solid like a building and so the because of the higher risk people are not willing to believe that the cash flow is going to continue certainly for very far into the future mm-hmm. so it's much more and, and when we talk about businesses we don't usually talk about cap rates we talk about multiples but but we can translate that so <clears throat> a very common multiple for a small business cash flow might be 2.2 right and if we convert Two point two into a cap rate, it equals forty percent.
0: So, just to kind of dumb it down, multiple is just like your annual income times two or two point two. It,
1: yeah, and and <clears throat> we can get into to the income numbers later because different kinds of businesses use different kinds of cash flow numbers. Okay, based on the type of business that it is. You would think so.
0: It would go off like net as opposed to gross, but I guess not, eh?
1: Well, well, let's get into that because believe me it's a whole big discussion. So so if we're using a multiplier of 2.2, if i improve a business's cash flow by $100, then that means i've only improved the value of the business by 220 bucks.
0: Yeah, it's not too much. So is
1: this is why you don't see really a lot of people flipping businesses, right? Every business owner that i've ever spoken to about selling their business when we start to talk about what their business is worth, and 2.2 is a general rule of thumb. There are plenty of businesses that have a much lower multiple, some that have a higher multiple. Um, the, the most common response I get from people when they find out what their business is like, going to sell for is, wow, if I just stuck around for a few years, I'd have the same money. Yeah. And this is why, back to my prior comment, it never makes sense to sell a good business. People only do it when they need to. Okay. Because it's just way more lucrative just to hang on to it. Right. And so let's talk about cash flow because in the world of real estate, we talk about typically net operating income. Right. And so in the world of business, there's net income that you would see like on an accountant's financial statement. And we typically go and we modify that, we go through a normalization of of the income statement. And so what people will do is they'll add back any non-cash expenses like amortization and depreciation. They also add back the interest, any finance charges, et cetera. And then they will add back any money that the owner is paying to themselves as well. They get back to a level of cash flow called seller's discretionary earnings, SDE. And seller's discretionary earnings is the total amount of cash flow available to a full-time owner-operator. So, why, why do we do that? Well, we get back to the point of cash flow where the owner can actually decide how things get recognized. So, for example, if you owned a business, let's say you owned a business, Sean, and it was going to make a hundred thousand dollar profit and owe income taxes this year, you could decide to pay yourself a hundred thousand dollar bonus and right. your business would have no profit and pay no income tax. Now, you would personally, right? Because it would just end up on your T4. But that's, that's what we mean by discretionary. We get back to the point where the owner can make decisions about how things get spent. Now, out of that seller's discretionary earnings, that's not all the money you get as an owner. A lot of different things have to be covered out of that money, but that typically is the basis for comparison of one business to the other. It's sort of the common ground that people can get to in bigger businesses. They will include an expense for the manager's job. And that's called normalized EBITDA or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So, out of that cash flow, we're talking seller's discretionary earnings. A business owner has to achieve several things. <clears throat> Number one is debt service. So, if you borrowed money to buy the business, you got to make your payments out of SDE. Because we added back depreciation and amortization, It means there's no recognition for capital expenditures to replace equipment and machinery. So that's got to come out of SDE as well. All of your taxes have to come out of SDE. If you're going to work full-time in this business as its manager, you have to take home enough money to to live on for your family. So an owner's salary has to come out of SDE Um, and then some kind of return on whatever cash you've put in the deal. And that's one of the ones that people often forget about. So People will sometimes see a business with an SDE of 100 grand. They'll go, "Wow, I can live on 100 grand. That's great." And and this is one of the issues where people will sometimes overpay for a business because they don't fully recognize all of the things that are going to be coming out of that cash flow. But if I want to compare, and just like you guys have, and real estate agents would have access to databases of past transactions for buildings, I subscribe to private databases where I've got access to past transactions of businesses. So if you want to buy a dry cleaner with a million dollars of revenue and $200,000 of SDE, I can go into databases and look for what other people have paid for dry cleaners with that kind of revenue and that kind of earnings. And I'll, I'm going to see the results expressed in two different ways, as a percentage of revenue and as a multiple of that cash flow. So I, I gave the example earlier of, you know the average is 2.2. Well, the average for a restaurant, a small restaurant is actually only about 1.7 and the average for a septic pumping business is about four. Wow. Is that- why, would, why would the multiples be so different? Again, this would be like saying two different kinds of buildings have vastly different cap rates, right? And you, you see that, right? An apartment building is gonna have a different kind of cap rate than an old industrial building, right? Mm-hmm. And what it has to do with is it has to do with risk. So when people look at a business like a small restaurant, um, let's think about that. We know that restaurants have a high failure rate. We know that there's a lot of competition. We know that people are probably very price sensitive, right? Um, If somebody wanted to start a new restaurant, they could probably find a location of a restaurant that had gone under. They could open it up very inexpensively with you know, some used restaurant equipment and they can open up a little business and start delivering food and get on to Uber Eats and that kind of thing, right? So there's very little barriers to entry. And so all of these competitive forces drive down the multiplier for restaurants. If you look at the septic business, you have a big investment in the form of a capital asset, the big pumper truck. And then additionally, you've got all kinds of environmental permits and things of this nature, right? That serve to keep people out. Additionally, you've got limited competition, you know, a lot of rural areas, maybe there's the option of just a few different septic companies and people don't call the septic truck every year typically. So they may not realize that it costs 10% more than last time, right? Because they're not using it frequently, which means that the septic business actually has more pricing power. They can increase the price. If you went for lunch every Friday to a restaurant and it was 1099 for lunch and then one day you went in there it was 1380 you'd be like oh it's more expensive now like you would immediately realize the price has gone up and some people might choose that moment to reassess whether they want to continue going to that place right and so these are these are the the reasons why one industry might have a different multiple than another
0: so what do you see like that would have like the highest multiple from the businesses that you look at
1: The the businesses that have the highest multiples are the ones that have the most assured cash flow. So if you want to think of it on a spectrum with restaurants being at the bottom and an apartment building is kind of a business, right? If we want to convert that, uh, well, for example, a 5% cap rate would be a 20X multiple, right? So think of this as your spectrum. So businesses that have a more regular recurring cash flow are going to have higher multiples. And so this is why businesses like auto insurance brokers would have a very, very high multiple compared with something like a restaurant. Because most people, once they have their car insurance, they just renew every year, right? And so that business would have a very regular cash flow.
0: Sorry, could, could you give an example on what where you would see an insurance brokerage having a multiple? Like, would it be 10
1: you know, in fact, insurance brokerages actually sell for multiples of their commission revenue. So it, it will be like, I don't know, 30, 40 times cash flow.
0: Oh geez. Huge.
1: The, the other thing that affects multiples is availability of credit. So one of the reasons why people can afford to get into real estate investing, for example, is that you don't have to have all the money for the building. You can borrow in the form of a mortgage. There's a whole ecosystem that's evolved around real estate lending and it's very straightforward. I know that you can't borrow all the money, but once people understand the rules, they know how much of a down payment they need when it comes to businesses. There are different ways you can finance a business, but in large part banks are only interested in financing tangible collateral. So let's talk about the restaurant. So you could have a restaurant like a pizzeria that has a cash flow of 100 grand a year and let's say cam you decide that you're willing to buy that pizzeria and you're willing to pay 175,000 for that cash flow so a 1.75 multiplier you go down to the bank and you say i want to buy the pizzeria they say great what are you buying and you say the pizzeria and they go, they won't accept that answer they'll say no cam you need to go down and make a list of the things you're buying and so you come back I'd with a list. I'd still repeat myself
2: three or four times.
1: <laughs> Would you? Okay. Yeah. So, so you come back with a list that says pizza oven, furniture, inventory, et cetera, all worth like 80 grand. And the banker says, great, we'll lend you 75% of that. <laughs> so so you're, you're actually not getting a percentage of the price of the business you're paying. You're getting a percentage of the stuff that comes with the business. And that's with a government program basically guaranteeing the bank loan with the bank. Okay. And so then there's this big gap. Well, where does the rest of the money come from? Some of it has to come from you because if the banker doesn't see that you're putting any money in, they will not want to do the deal. They need to see that you got some skin in the game and a broad rule of thumb. There's exceptions to everything, but a broad rule of thumb is that most banks are going to want to see a three to one debt to equity ratio you guys are familiar with loan to value, right? That's the terminology in the real estate world. In the business world, we use debt to equity. So $3 of debt to $1 of equity would be the equivalent of a 75% LTV. If you want to think about it like a building. Okay. And so you're going to have to have at least a quarter. So Cam, we're looking at your example here. If the bank is willing to lend you 60 of that 175 and you are going to need at least a quarter to satisfy them. So 175 times 0.25 is 175 times 0.25 is about 44 grand plus the 60 grand that they're going to lend you. That's only 103. So where's the rest going to come from? The rest typically comes either by you putting up more or the seller willing to accept some of his money over time. So in creative real estate financing, we sometimes talk about seller notes, vendor carryback, et cetera, you know, or a a seller holding a second mortgage or something like that. In the world of business transactions, it's the norm. And one of the problems that business owners get into, remember how I said it never makes sense to sell a business until you need, until you're forced to from a personal reason. Because of this, a lot of people who enter this market as sellers have no idea how businesses are sold. And a lot of them will equate it to selling a house. They'll think that they're gonna find a buyer who's gonna write them a check. And they're often very surprised to find out that they might have to carry a lot of that seller, a lot of the deal they might have to accept over time. If you go online, you start looking up this kind of stuff, you're gonna find a lot of articles that are American-based the financing scenario in the States is entirely different than Canada. They have a setup called the Small Business Administration, which basically allows for loans against the purchase price of the business. And so it's much more familiar to the real estate example that you guys live. So I work with people all the time who are putting down 20% of the purchase price and the SBA loan guarantee is covering the balance at the bank, regardless of how many pieces of hard assets are in the business. Now, some people think, well, that's crazy. We should have that too in Canada. We should, we should be able to get that kind of financing. Here's the effect though. The same business on the American side of the border, equivalent, you know, same size business in Canada and the U S and the States will sell for 30% more because there's greater availability of financing. And that's what we've seen in real estate. When You know, if you remember back, Sean, when you first got into real estate investing, you can get income properties with 5% down. Well, that drove the prices up, right? Because more people could get into the market and with easy access to the leverage. So I always say to people, you know, be careful what you wish for. I like to have a good degree of seller financing because it's the one tool that buyers can use to mitigate risk. Because when you buy a building, you call your home inspector or the building inspector, and you can get a pretty good idea of the state of the building. You can have a pretty good idea of what you're going to have to do as far as repairs, maintenance, et cetera. When you're looking at a business, there are a lot of things you are not going to be able to fully understand. Like no one's probably going to tell you the shipper receiver has a drinking problem, (laughs) right? Or that, or that, you know, one of the customers, you know, might be going to someone else or, or whatever, right? And so when you buy the business, one of the things that we do is on that seller note, we will have an offset clause. So it'll say this note subject to offset in the case of a material misrepresentation or an undisclosed liability or lien. And what that does is it means that if something comes up for the new owner and it's a problem relating to something that the previous owner did, you go to the previous owner and you say, look, you need to fix this. You need to come good on it. Maybe it's someone who has a warranty claim or a problem with work the past owner did. Because if, if you don't address that with the customer, guess what? The reputation of the business is going to be damaged and now you're the owner, right? You don't want that. You want to preserve that reputation. That's why you bought the business. And so that would be you know, a subject for using the offset clause is you'd say, look, you created this problem, I'm going to fix it, and I'm gonna deduct that amount from what I owe you. And then if they have a problem with that, they have to sue you. See, I don't know if you have any lawyers on the call, but when, when you start to get into suing people, then you get into legal fees, and then you get into having to you know, pay retainer fees to lawyers and stuff. And so just accessing justice can cost a lot of money, And when we're talking about deals in the low hundreds of thousands of dollars, the legal solution can just be so expensive, it doesn't make sense, right? And that's why you want to protect yourself through the deal structure. And this is why having a a good portion of the price being financed by the seller is so important.
0: So how does that get registered? Do you simply, like, does the paperwork spell it out in such a way that, like, if X, Y, and Z happens, then the loan is like
1: not due anymore? It it, it depends. That's a great question. So most of the time on that note, on that debt instrument, it simply says this note subject to offset in the case of material misrepresentation or undisclosed liabilities or liens. Having that as part of the conversation with the seller usually makes them realize that they have to be forthright and honest. Right. They have to, they have to open the kimono. They have to like reveal everything that's going on. And so sometimes you have instances where there's like a deviation between what's on tax returns and what the seller claims is going on in the business. That's been known to happen in the world of small business. Right. And so I actually had a deal once where there was a small restaurant and the seller claimed that there was an additional amount of cash sales that weren't being declared. And so what we did on the seller note is we said, after six months, we're going to add up the sales, the new owner has, and here's a matrix if the sales are this amount, then everything's okay. But if they're this amount, we're going to deduct this off the note. If they're this amount, we're going to deduct this off the note. It was all spelled out in advance. If Basically, if the seller's claim about the undeclared sales turned out not to be true, then the buyer would end up paying a far lower price for the business. And so really, I guess what I want to get across here is that there, there's no real rules. It's anything that you can negotiate, anything that you can dream up and that the other party will agree to. And, uh, you know, at the time of the deal.
0: Interesting. So like, do you ever work with people that actually facilitate the sales or you're simply, I guess as the, the step back that you're taking is that you have like a set fee. It's not like a percentage. Does that hold yeah.
1: You? So I, I help people sell businesses too. Like I just had a I, I do work with people all over the place. So I had one, a great example last year in Wisconsin. It was a family-owned bakery. So they hired me to do an evaluation. I showed them what the bakery would likely sell for. And then they had me do a buyer-facing set of documents. We call it a business profile. And so I did that up. They paid me. I had the same business model as an accountant or a lawyer. I do things, people pay me. I do things, people pay me. Then I read an advertising program for them. Um, and so people were inquiring off of the business for sale websites that business brokers would use. And when the inquiry would come to, into me, I would send a questionnaire and an NDA to the prospective buyer. But when they completed it, it would go to the seller and the seller would call them. And so I was coaching the seller, but I wasn't actually dealing with the buyer. And so what's, what's interesting is that the mindset around deal making in a business transaction is very different from real estate. And this is where one of the big challenges that real estate professionals have if they ever want to migrate into the world of business brokerage. In real estate, we try to keep buyers and sellers apart because there's always this fear that if they start talking to each other in some way that they'll figure out how to screw the realtor out of the commission, right? So you want to keep them apart. In the world of business brokerage, you have to establish trust. The buyer has to trust what the seller is saying or else they'll never agree to the price. And the seller has to trust that the buyer is going to be able to execute and run the business or else they'll never agree to a seller note, right? And so you basically have two people coming together where they have a mutual interest. Both of them are interested in the success of the buyer, the buyer because they want to have a successful business and the seller because they want to get paid. And part of the part of the purchase price is going to come from the proceeds of the successful business. And so when you're trying to facilitate a business sale, you actually have to push the two parties together and create a relationship, which ideally should end in a friendship. The 36 deals I did when I was working here in Moncton, um, only two of them did not end in the buyer and seller being friends. Only two of them. The rest of the deals, the buyer and seller had a transition period where they worked with each other and then the sellers continued to receive payments and they continued to talk each other, to each other. Like they really created a relationship between two people. And so, um, so it's, it's different, it's collaborative. Getting a deal to come together and getting things like bank financing to work is really hard. I talked about what the bank would be willing to do for Cam's case, you know, as far as the restaurant equipment. But the reality is, is that for every four or five people that go down to the bank to try to get a business loan, one of them might succeed. Oh, wow. The rest of them will not. And it's, it's because of one of them, a number of factors. It's who the buyer is. The bank might not think they have the right experience to run that kind of business. The bank might agree that they've got the money to do the deal, but the bank wants to see them have even more resources. If something goes wrong, they've got extra capital they can inject. right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of reasons why banks will not agree to finance a business loan. And so most of the deals that actually get done to buy these small businesses don't have any kind of business financing. They take advantage of other kinds of financing. So we already talked about the seller financing, but the other types would be people's personal resources. So it's funny because when I was a, when I was a business broker, I would often have people go into one of the big banks on Main Street to get a business loan. They'd be declined and then I would send them back to talk to the to talk to the personal loan officer and say, no, "Go get a home line of credit and tell them you want to build a swimming pool," and they'd get approved for that. <laughs> and then they'd use the money to buy the business, right? So I'll be making pizza after all. So it's it's you know developing assets that give you liquidity options is important if you want to get into buying a business. So, number 1 cash is king, you know, just actually having cash in a savings account. Number 1. Number 2 would be high liquidity things like participating whole life insurance policies. So, these are not your term life policies, but the more expensive ones that develop a cash value because you can borrow against it. at at your will, like there's no underwriting on the part of the insurance company. You just call them up and say, I want an advance against that cash value and they'll give it to you. Um, Having real estate with a lot of equity in it is is good if you can access the equity. And as you guys know, um, a lot of bank loans, lines of credit, even home equity lines of credit, they're demand loans, which means that you might be approved with the credit limit today and you could write a check today and then something could change and the bank could close off your access to further liquidity or convert your HELOC into a term loan or something like that. So there's access to cash, there's liquidity, and then there's the quality of that liquidity. These are all things that you have to take into consideration.
0: What would you say like is, you know, aside from like getting secured assets on personal stuff, what would be like the typical interest rate on like a business loan for your average business?
1: If it's one of the government guaranteed um, Canada small business finance act loan program loans, then it's, it's prime bank, prime plus three. It's always mm-hmm. the same. Um, if you go to BDC, they're a cash flow lender. So they, they have a little bit of a different formulation of how they look at it. They look at the, at the, the profitability of the business more and, and how that profitability will allow the business to, to make the loan payments for the smaller deals. BDC has express programs where they just look at the credit standing of the buyer. Like if you want 50 or hundred grand, it's basically right. based on your credit score.
0: What is Primat right now anyways? Oh, I don't, I don't Rest- know.
1: It's, it's low. It's like two, 1.75 or two.
0: Okay. So you're talking like five ish percent is kind of like yeah. typical around now. Yeah. And then so seller financing for, Part of the business, do they typically float in the same range? Like, I'm assuming that they're having less collateral. If the bank's putting first title on everything else, they're technically on second title or just a loan. That's collateral. yeah.
1: So, so let's let's talk about title and position. So, when you if you're buying um, a small business, is typically an asset sale, and so that means that the seller has an entity and the buyer has their own entity and the stuff that the business owns is being sold. And so a lot of the times the stuff is literally a bunch of small stuff. Maybe it's some vehicles that have titles, right? And so the seller, if they want to register security, they'll typically get a a GSA, a general security agreement on the business that's being sold. Um, They might put liens directly on the vehicles if there's a bunch of vehicles Some people try to get cute and they'll tell a seller, like in the case of Cam's pizzeria, let's say that Cam told the seller, look, I'll bring you 100 grand on closing day if you finance the other 75. The seller might agree to that thinking that Cam has 100 grand. And then on closing day, when everyone shows up to the lawyer's office, lo and behold, there's a GSA agreement from a bank and the seller's being asked to sign a postponement or sign a second position. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought that you had a hundred grand and I was going to be in first position. I've seen deals fall apart because of that. In fact, on my offer to purchase form, I actually had a disclosure. I would say the buyer on closing day will bring this amount of money from their own savings and this amount of money from the bank. Right. Like, So it was absolutely clear what was being done because that kind of surprise causes deals to fall apart.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Let, yeah. Let, you know, getting back to that valuation stuff we were talking about before, um, you know, it, it makes it sound like it's way more worth your while to be involved in real estate than in business. But, but here's the, you know, in real estate, you've got access to a huge lever in the form of the financing, Right. This is what allows you to take a little bit of capital and do big things with it, especially if you're going to improve the cash flow and it's going to improve the value of your building. In business, the financing is more difficult, but the business itself is a lever. So let me give you an example. Cam's Pizzeria. Okay. I don't know if you guys know this, but it only costs about two bucks to make a pizza that you sell for 20.
0: Yeah, I I always know there's pretty good margins on it.
1: Okay. I'm not ripping you off guys, I swear. Here's here's the problem though, is that you actually only make your first dollar after you've sold about a thousand pizzas in a month, really, because of the overheads of the business, the rent, the the heating, the electricity, the advertising, the employees, all that stuff, right? And so, if you can sell, you know, four thousand pizzas in a month, but most of your overhead remains the same then almost $18 on every new sale goes right to the bottom line. So this is what I mean by the business is a lever. And so um, when you get into business, yeah, it's harder to get it to become worth more. It's harder to finance it, but it's also a lot easier to double the earnings of a business than it is to double the earnings of a building.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Extra marketing efforts or new
1: uh, connections or whatever the case may be. right? Exactly. And so, a lot of the times when, when I've been a part of deals where people have bought a business, the seller you know, has been older and they haven't been as aggressive with it. They've got their debts paid off, which means they don't have like a banker at their heels kind of thing. Um, when businesses don't have debts, they can afford to become more sluggish. They don't you know, raise their prices as frequently as they should, et cetera, et cetera. That person sells the business and they sell it for a value based on what it's performing for them someone who has a little more vim and vinegar and energy, and maybe a little bit more in the way of know-how in, in certain aspects of the business comes along and buys it paying a fair price. And then they start to apply their knowledge and their skills. And all, lo and behold, the business starts to improve. And now the sales start to go up and based upon whatever the, the, the gross margins are, how much of each sale is, you know, direct costs versus that overhead can determine how much of an increase you can get by increasing the sales, how, how, how big an increase on the bottom line. And so I've seen all kinds of circumstances where people have left that retirement age, someone new has come in, and all of a sudden they've started to grow the business, 20, 25% a year for several years, and, and they are able to double it in you know, just a few years.
2: So I actually had that as a question because you said that you don't see business flipping all that much. I mean, I've been involved in service-based businesses and have sat through a lot of conferences that really grow the idea of overhead per man day and service contracts. And the business is only as profitable as their, their group of contracts. Would you be able to touch on maybe stuff that would apply to our area? As we do have quite a few folks on this call that are of the investor mindset, you know, a few names I recognize that are involved in small businesses locally that could maybe show some interest shifting from real estate Two small businesses uh, and kind of those lever metrics that, you know, one wouldn't think of looking for.
1: Yeah. So so the the diamond in the rough, the 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 ultimate goal for anyone. And I, I run a coaching program for people that want to buy a business. It's a group coaching program, and there's about twenty five people in it from all over the all over the world. Then the the diamond in the rough that people are looking for is the business that is profitable and has problems that the buyer knows how to fix. And this almost always means that you're gonna be looking for a business in a domain in which you have personal experience, right? So when somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I found this great opportunity in the printing industry. My first question is, what do you know about printing? If they, if they say nothing, then I say, well, why hasn't another printer bought it then? Are you sure it's a good opportunity? Yeah. That's
0: right
1: right? And so you want to have some expertise in the industry. And, and I know that there's a few sort of uh, tangential businesses to real estate development. I know that, you know, if you've got 15 lawns to mow, then you start to think, well, maybe I should be in the lawn care business, right? And then I can add some other customers. That can make total sense, right? Um, it can, you know. Does it make sense to build it out into a whole business where you're spending money on advertising, all that kind of stuff? Well, it, it depends on what your expertise is. And if you know how to run that kind of business, if adding a few more customers makes it easier for you to have a full-time employee that is able to handle all that stuff for you, then it might make sense. There's there's sort of differing degrees of how deeply you can get into another business. Well, that's and- a good point because
2: I think there's a key determining factor with owning your job versus being a a proper business owner. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen it time and time again, I'm sure most people here have engaged with small businesses and it's merely somebody owning their job that, you know, they're just collecting a paycheck. They're not really passionate about driving it, being involved, finding solutions to key problems. And the landscaping, I think is a hilarious term because, you know, coming home now, I'm getting all these snow removal flyers in the spring. It's all the, the grass guys and I go with the same guy right year after year. And you know the the model and barriers to entry are all the same, and uh, you know there's nothing really new. But the vertical integration, I think the add-on piece would be unique. And I, I maybe you could touch on some examples that you've had where vertical integration is you know right off the hop, where you say yeah, go for that. And these are kind of the ABCs to look at right off the the purchase. Well,
1: the, let me let me give everyone here a big a big tip. And this is a tip I've been giving away for free, and no one seems to want to ever capitalize on it. I'm so notes. one at one time, I owned three buildings here in town: two triplexes and a fourplex. And I used to like load my lawnmower into my car's trunk and fold down the handle so it would fit. And I would drive to all three of these places and mow the lawns. And then I got kids, and I realized I can't do this anymore. So I got someone who would mow the lawn, and then they got a tractor and they wanted to do snow removal too. And I said, "Sure, why not?" And they kept asking me, you know, every winter they wanted two checks and every summer they wanted two checks. And I said, listen, give me a price for lawn mowing and snow removal year round, divide by 12, and let me pay you monthly because my cash flow is monthly. Can I pay you monthly? Yeah, the subscription model. They said, yeah, okay, we can do that. So then a year later, I was talking with the guy and I said, how many people do you have on your monthly plan? He said, well, you're the only one that asked.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. And just think about that. Um, any landlord has a monthly cash flow cycle. So why not put the snow removal and the lawn mowing onto a monthly cash flow cycle? Right. It would add value to the landlord, the customer, and make them more sticky because it smooths out the cash flow. Right. I've even suggested this to painters. I said, why don't you offer a landlord painting program where you can, you know, if say like an apartment's a thousand dollars to paint, you can say, look, it's either a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars a month for 12 months. Because in the month that you're painting the apartment, it's usually you have no revenue for the apartment because it's empty that month. Okay. And so you've got no income and you have a big bill, right? So I've I've given this one away to like three different painting contractors, and none of them have run with it. Like you know,
2: I've been to a few seminars in the States and and that's always the big thing with service ticket items, right? What is the inherent value of, of signing up per month, right? It's easier to close your customer. Uh, you know, you don't pay 10 bucks a month or a thousand bucks a year. You know, there there's more value add and billing monthly and chances are they'll just keep going. But the, the yeah. key determining factor is the service that you offer. Hey, I need my painting done now. Boom. You're there, you know, in 24 hours, you're not going to the run Cam, you you days.
1: you talked about guys owning their job versus a business. Absolutely. And that book, E-Myth by Michael Gerber, um, yeah. that I, I kind of mentioned here earlier, um, in that book, Gerber says basically that 90% of small business owners are people who know a certain skill. Um, like the guy, the roofer knows how to install shingles. And they ended up building a business in that field because yeah. that's their talent or their knowledge. Uh, but they're not real business people. They don't see an opportunity in the market and decide to exploit that and create a better solution value proposition for the customers. And what I used to work for yellow pages, that was one of my first careers out of, out of university. And um, I thought that everyone I met was going to be a Carnegie and a Ford and boy, was I ever wrong. It was like most people succeeded in spite of their best efforts to fail. Like people not answering their phone, people being rude to their customers, you know, but they're the only muffler shop that could do that certain thing. So they kept in business. Right. And, and so it blows me away. You know, this is why there is a movement afoot for people looking for industries that lack professionalism, professionalism and they go after these industries and they try to, you know, set up a franchise or set up a chain in different cities to try to make some of these services a little more palatable for the customers.
2: No, without question. Um, and, and I mean, it's just the simple tweaks, because I mean, I, I think that I was hell bent on owning uh, some cash-based businesses. Uh, laundromat was one of them. Um, before I got into real estate investing, that was, you know, I was hell-bound, hellbent on finding. And, you know, I went into the discovery of one deal and he's like, I will show you everything that you need to know and everything that the bank needs to see. And I mean, uh, that was eight years ago and I was just kind of put off by that cloak and dagger. Uh, he still has not sold the business, but uh, do you have an opinion on cash-based businesses and, and try
1: to maybe look for a few key things and how you would set those deals up? So so I love them uh, as, as a buyer. And the reason why I love them is because when you say cash-based, you mean with lots of undeclared revenue? They could be, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, physical so cash that's passing through. I love them because uh, the sellers have made their businesses unbankable. And so it doesn't matter who comes along or who makes an offer. As soon as they get to the bank, they can't get the deal done, which means that if that guy wants to sell his business, they're going to have to make a deal with someone and they're going to have to finance it. And I'm going to have all kinds of conditions and warranties and schedules and matrices in that note that's going to protect my interests. So right now he owns the risk in the business. And after he sells it to someone like that, he's still going to have the risk in the business.
2: Yeah, and I think on the real estate side, the the equivalent that I found are rooming houses, which um, mm. you know are just cash juggernauts. And if executed well, I mean, you know, one building can uh, be someone's livelihood. But again, the banks can only finance 65 percent, even with a creative master lease. You know, if you've got a bunch of suites and it's Jimmy, Sally, Timmy, they're still only going to touch it in a certain way and not look at the cash flow, even though comparing it, you know, a five door apartment versus a five bedroom they' they're still very hesitant to look at that increased cash flow um, but again like a lot of a lot of people just put it to market saying it's worth 1.5 based on cash but based on building valuation it's worth 800,000 and you know sits on the market then just goes dead to uh, the water and fades away.
1: yeah well I mean if that if that person really wanted to sell it, then if they were willing to be creative with the financing, obviously that would be a way for them to exit. But usually that's not what they want. They, they want the big cash windfall and then they want to ride off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, the sort of risk reward penalty kind of thing when it comes to selling a business. Like uh, when I meet business sellers that have been trying to sell for a long time, I'll say, well, I'll, I'll share an example with you. This was up in Kent County back when I used to have the, my business brokerage office, I got a call from a real estate agent who was trying to sell a restaurant for someone. And he said, Hey, I've got a buyer from my restaurant. Can you tell me where to go to get financing? And I was like, no, like I'm in the business of selling businesses. You should refer them to me. I'll do the deal. And he was like, no, I'm not going to refer them to you. And the business ended up, the restaurant ended up closing. It ended up closing and never sold. And then somebody bought the building and opened up a new restaurant because all the plumbing and everything was already
2: there. (laughs) Zero barriers to entry.
1: And so why, why could this uh, real estate agent never be able to find financing for his buyer? Well, he didn't know that nobody finances restaurants. Really? Like it has to be seller financed. And the seller was never prepared with that knowledge. They were... You know, when I had my brokerage office open, when people would come in to talk about selling their business in the very first meeting, I would tell them that they wouldn't get all their money on closing. Like you will have to finance part of this. And so if I was a real estate agent and and that rooming house owner was, you know, coming to see me about selling the building, I would say, well, basically what you've got here is a cash business and the banks don't like that. And if you want me to sell it for you, you're going to have to be prepared to hold like 30% of this deal in a second note. And you might have to postpone your payments for a couple of years too. And if, if that's okay with you, then maybe we can look at moving going to market.
2: Yeah. Do you think that's perhaps why in the last five years, we've seen an influx of chain restaurants that would be obviously supporting the
1: franchisee with that finance? Um, So interesting that you should say that um, the, In the world of of franchises, one of the reasons why businesses will choose to expand in a franchise model is because then they get to leverage the capital of the franchisee, right? And so in order for that franchisee to be able to secure the franchise and to open it up, they have to bring a lot of net worth into the deal. And so there are certain franchises that are easier to get money from the bank. there are certain ones that have their own special deals with certain banks. Yep. But basically the franchisor is willing to backstop that franchisee. And sometimes it's more creative like um, home hardware, for example, uh, home hardware has a deal where they have a 100% buyback guarantee for all inventory. And so what that does for their franchisees is it means that a normal Um, sort of hardware store might be able to finance 60 or 70% of their inventory, but a home hardware franchisee can often finance more because the bank knows that if it should shut down, home hardware will take back everything in the store. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it makes it easier for them to get more leverage on their inventory.
2: Yeah. Which is why I think, I mean, you see a lot of home hardwares in rural communities. I mean uh, if you drive up to one twenty six, I think you'll see two, um, you know, or even uh, Highway 11. I mean, it, it's pretty crazy that home hardware is as uh, as big and robust. And they've created these juggernauts too with, with whole building system outfits locally that have really tapped into the community. So I think that uh, in terms of-
1: There's a, a, a legacy play there though, because at yeah. one time there were all these independent hardware stores and lumber yards. And they, I think that at one point, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they were kind of offered a great deal to get in to to create that well
2: their buying group is pretty phenomenal and uh what they've created too is i guess decentralized buying power where you could have access to the you know the big box store pricing but get it from a local guy which cuts down on the transportation and you're still increasing some of the relationships which is good um if i was a business owner that was thinking about selling and if you're into giving a free tip what are one or two things that I might want to be aware of, or that I could do, that's um, capable for someone that's lazy or you know ready to retire or not mentally there?
1: Sure. So when you sell a business, the buyer is going to ask themselves two questions. The first question is, what is the cash flow, and that's going to determine the price. So if you're thinking about selling your business, you want to make sure that you have as high a cash flow as you can, as you can, and you can demonstrate. So, you know, if you're doing things like letting your spouse use the company gas card to fill up their car, like stop, stop doing that kind of stuff. Okay. Make like, even though you're going to have to pay more taxes, like have everything be as clean as possible for several years, you know, before your target date for exiting. So that's the first question. What is the cash flow? That's going to determine the price. The second question any buyer is going to ask themselves is will this cash flow continue under my stewardship? So that's an interesting question, right? Yep. So now the buyer is going to look at this business and say, can I actually do what the, this person is doing? Can I actually run it the way they're running it, right? And so I like to use the example of a roofer. So if you imagine a, a guy who's a tradesman, a roofer, knows how to shingle roofs and spends all day managing his crew. And at night he visits homeowners and he gives out quotes and stuff, right? We probably know someone like this, right? Oh yeah, many. And so- that that person they know everything there is to know about roofing. They look at a roof, they're like, "Oh, I'm going to have to use a special material." That valley's pretty, near, you know, deep or whatever. Like, and they're they're looking at things and they're working out the price and they're estimating and they're coming up with a price. So, if that guy's doing everything in his head, and maybe in a little notebook, and then working up prices, and maybe he knows what it should cost for a Dobson three bedroom in Riverview because he's done it 150 times, right? Like that person is only ever going to be able to sell their business to someone else with a similar skill who might be 10 or 15 years younger. Yeah. Because nobody else is going to believe that they can pull off what he does because of his experience. But if they take the time to create a quoting tool, which could be as simple as an Excel spreadsheet where you put in the dimensions, you know, the roof is this wide, this, this tall, you know, here's the slope, here's the number of feet of Valley that there is like, you know, you put in the calculations, this is how we estimate the labor. This is how I estimate the materials I put in my costs here. And this is my margin I want to try to get. And there's my price. Yeah. Well, now we, we can demonstrate to a buyer, Hey, anyone can learn how to use the tool if they can measure. Right. And so now anyone with any kind of like sales or customer service aptitude might become a potential buyer for this business because they can see how they can take care of that Part of the business, right? And so we're talking about systems, processes, having things documented. Um, I sold a couple of restaurants, and the buyer was a a person who had worked in restaurants, but they never owned one before. And and the buyer, the the buyer says to the seller, um, "You know, how can we be sure that the staff will stay around as a new owner? I really am going to be depending on those employees." And the seller leaned forward and said, it's a restaurant in a year, they'll all be gone. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And then he said, and this is the process I've developed for finding the best people to hire. And then he started to explain how he had come up with these different advertisement scripts that he puts up when he advertises, how he sorts out the responsible people from the irresponsible people. So it was like in the ad, it would say, "Email your resume to this email address," and then he would he would, after he looked at the resume, he would reply back and say, "Call my phone to set a meeting time." Right? Well, only like half the people he said that to actually did. It was just an extra step to show to determine if someone would actually had a little bit of ambition, right? To actually pick up the phone. And so he's describing these steps to the buyer, and he's like, "I've got." I've got this all written down. I've got all the scripts and then I have these training packages that I put together. So when I hire someone, I can give it to them and they can read through and they can learn about what we do here before they arrive in their first day. And so he's explaining why the staff turnover problem is not a problem because he's addressed it through some sort of process in the business that can be taught. And so that's how you answer the question number two of whether or not it can be carried on under the new owner stewardship is is you talk you have this stuff organized. So if you have a business and everything's kind of by the seat of your pants, you want to start to get things documented.
2: Okay. Now that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I mean, it's common gripes. I know that uh, chatting with people, normally real estate investors are linked. We're also business owners themselves. and. Um, you know, doing what's easy sometimes is what gets you through, but, you know, it does come to selling. You have to kind of have a system in place. You have to have legitimate business with a process to go along with the assets and maybe some of the contracts that you have. But uh,
1: I think someone had, someone had submitted a question there beforehand. Do you, uh, Sean, do you have the access to that? Do you want to read that for us? Maybe we can get into that one
0: thing. My question to David will be, what will be the best structure to go with for a group of investors looking to acquire and invest in small businesses? Uh yeah, and that, that was it. There was further comments, but that was it.
1: Okay. So, so this is an easy, uh, easy question to answer because all I have to say is it depends, right? <laughs> so, so it, it depends on what the ultimate goal is. So I'll give you an example. Um, Oftentimes, if you're going to have more than one person buying a business together um, and then you try to get bank financing, the bank thinks that's great and they're going to ask every one of those participants to guarantee the loan. And so if you think about uh, maybe buying uh, the shares of a company, like if you bought stock in the phone company, uh, they don't then ask you to guarantee the debts at the bank. Right. Usually when you're an investor, you're. Your total loss, your total exposure is the amount you've put in, right? And so, so you have to start to think about what is the structure going to be and what are we trying to achieve. So if you pooled a bunch of people's money together and you so that you didn't have to go to the bank, you would evade that problem. So you could have a company and you could have shares in the company, and you could have, you know, the investors being different shareholders. Um, I know someone in the restaurant business. Restaurants are notoriously hard to finance, especially a new restaurant. And what they did is they went and found a a large number of investors and each one, they sold a preferred share to each one of those investors and it had a specific coupon yield. So every year the investor earned a set rate of return on their preferred share, but they were callable. So that means that the, the person that owned the common stock, the person that ran the restaurant, had the right to call in those preferred shares and buy them back. And so over the course, basically, instead of borrowing money at the bank and paying off the bank over time, they got these investors to put in the preferred shares, paid them a fixed rate of return. And then every year they bought back one or two of those preferred shares to tear them up. And this is how they got rid of those people and eventually ended up owning the business all to themselves. So, investors can sometimes be a way of doing equity finance to avoid the problems of trying to get a bank to finance a business. If you wanted to have a group of investors that wanted to make investments in multiple businesses, what you might do is use some kind of limited partnership structure. So your investors would buy limited partnership units And you can set this up with the help of a lawyer, but you might say that every limited partnership unit has a face value of $1,000. Different people could put in different amounts of money in $1,000 increments to own limited partnership units. And then that limited partnership would be able to go and make investments in businesses, either buying them entirely or um, making a secondary position loan to an entrepreneur that was gonna try to put together a deal for a business or by doing something like what a private equity group might do where they're going to contribute part of the equity in acquiring the business and it has that equity has to behave in a way that it's like equity not debt. So what do I mean by that? When a banker looks at the deal, remember how I said they like to see in general a 3 to 1 debt to equity ratio, they want to see the buyer have money in the deal that is not going to demand cash. They want to, and this is how they protect themselves as the bank. They want to make sure there's enough free cash flow to pay the bank. And so, if you have partners or you have any kind of outside financing that requires a payment, that jeopardizes your ability to make the bank payment. They don't like that. So, if you had a private investment come in, which was completely subordinated to the bank, where there was no payments, no interest, no cash flow at all being paid to that private equity investor until after the bank had been paid off, for example, then the bank is gonna be far more willing to recognize that as being true equity, right? So you could have that limited partnership by uh, some kind of preferred share or common stock or whatever in this business and be willing to wait until the bank had been paid out, for example, and then start to get some sort of return on that investment or wait until the business became more valuable or, or whatever. There really are like dozens, hundreds of different ways to slice and dice this, depending on what the goals are, there's a whole industry called the private equity industry where they are creating these kinds of investment vehicles. What I've discovered on a small scale is it's it's difficult to get somebody to pony up money that's going to go sit in a bank somewhere waiting for some kind of deal to come along to invest in. Usually what happens is when you talk to oh, you know, wealthy person, like there's Joe, he's wealthy, right? You go to Joe and you say, Hey, I want to put money together to buy a business. He's going to say, yeah, show me the deal. If there's money to be made, I'm interested. Right. But if you don't have a deal to show Joe, Joe's not going to get excited and give you money. He wants to see what the deal is. Right. And so it creates this chicken and egg problem where, um, and if you've ever heard the term search funder, um, they're, they're, there's a term that they have, uh, unfunded correspondent, which is basically someone out there with no money pretending that they have money trying to find a deal that they can then go show to investors. And business brokers and business sellers really don't like that. They want to know that they're dealing with somebody that has the ability to, to bring cash into the deal to do the deal. And so- That's also somebody, very
2: common in real estate too, Dave.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is. Well, let me tell you about a deal that that I did Uh, personally, I I brought together, I found a piece of land and I made a YouTube video about this called mini storage mess. So I bought, I found a piece of land and I quickly corralled a bunch of people that I knew and we raised about 80 grand. So these they all bought common shares. We raised 80 grand to go and buy the land. Then we owned the land outright and had cash in the bank. Then we wanted to get a mini storage built. And so when we started to talk to the lenders, what, and, and so let me tell you about the investors. There were eight of them, I believe the smallest one put in three grand, the biggest ones put in 15. Okay. So, and some of these guys were net worth millionaires, 15 grand is not a lot of money. They, they, they looked at the deal quickly and they said, that looks like a good deal, but mostly they believed in me. Right. Cause they knew me and they're like, Oh, if David's heading this up, it's probably okay. Okay. And then he, all he's going to do with the money is buy land and it's going to sit in the bank. So they didn't perceive a lot of risk. Well, here was the challenge. When we got the quotes for building the building, we then went to the bank and the banks all wanted all of the investors to sign on the loan. And like the guy who put in three grand, he's like, I already put in three grand. I'm not going to sign, sign my name to a $200,000 mortgage. And, and the wealthiest of the guys said, I already put in 15 grand. If, if this defaults, they're not going to sue all you guys. They're just going to sue me because they know I have the money, mm-hmm. right? And so I had to shop around to try to find a solution. And you know what I did? I went to the credit union and the credit union agreed to limit the liability of each investor to the amount they had put in. Mm-hmm. Smarts. So that meant no, but that meant they were doubling their jeopardy. Because the guy who put in three grand had to sign a personal guarantee on the loan of three grand. And the guy who put in 15 grand also had to guarantee 15 of the loan. So it wasn't as bad as what the banks wanted, but it still wasn't ideal. At the end of the day, the building permit and the zoning, all that other stuff got messed up. It's a great video. You should watch it. Uh, We ended up not doing the deal. And so we then put the land up for sale. We ended up holding that land for two years and we paid property tax on it twice before we were able to sell it. And when we liquidated the corporation, I was able to give everyone 88 cents on the dollar. And so it turned into a money losing thing. Uh, Never invest in Riverview. And um, But I don't think people were that upset with me because they got most of their money back. And at the end of the day, you know, that was my experience in, in raising money from a group of people.
0: Yeah, lesson learned. You don't know till you try or something like that too, right?
1: Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, some people ask me, like, how do, I, how do I do this? How do I get a bunch of investors together? And the answer is to develop your network, is to spend time getting to know people and, you know, ask them what kind of things they're interested in. And you have to spend invest time in, in working within that network to know what people are interested in so that when you find something, you can quickly go and talk to enough people quickly enough to get your money together.
0: So it's, on, the, on, on the note where you're talking about um, being able to invest in a small business around here, do you know much about the, the tax write-offs for investors investing in small businesses?
1: So um, if you're going to buy an existing business, there's not really anything in the way of tax write-offs. There's the Small Business Investor Tax Credit Program, which is for starting businesses. It's not for buying them.
0: Okay, and so yeah, for some reason I thought there was one. Like I, I know some people that were investing into like a tech company that had already been running for several years, but for whatever reason they can so.
1: So that small business investor tax credit program can also be used to grow a business. So yeah. if you have a business and you want to grow and bring more money in for expansion, you can use that too. Um, and the government of New Brunswick has a website about that, like with all the details, but to for the government to give you a 50% tax credit to then go and buy a business that's already making money. Like they're not going to let you do that.
0: Okay. Gotcha. So realistically, if somebody's investing into it, it's probably a business that's not necessarily making money, but they're hoping that the investments will get them to the next level so that they actually do make some money.
1: Uh, well, or or it's for growth. Like it could still be a money making business, and that is seeking more investment. But you see the difference between a business that's seeking investment to grow versus people putting money together to buy a business that right. is that is profitable, because in that case, there's no net growth it's the, the, the seller will take that money and leave. Okay. And so economically speaking, the province isn't any better off. Like the business was there employing five people or whatever. And then after the deal, the business is still there employing five people. They, they want to use this tax credit program to cause growth or new startups. Okay. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. I haven't looked into that too much. Um,
1: in, in, in general, there are the government programs, whether it's, economic development agencies or tax credit programs like the one you just mentioned, all of the help that it comes from any kind of government or any kind of government tax credit is for starting something new. There's very little in the way of help for acquiring something that's already profitable because the regular commercial banks are willing to finance the right deals under the right circumstances. And as you get into the bigger and bigger businesses, it's easier and easier to find financing amongst the commercial banks, as long as you're properly capitalized and have the right management team um, with the right experience and background.
0: Okay. Are you allowed to talk about any deals that are out there existing that somebody could actually buy into right now? Here in Moncton? Well, not necessarily in Moncton, just in general. Atlanta, Canada. uh,
1: You know, I... I, I consult all the time on different deals. Like, um, let me take a look here. Like right now in Atlantic Canada, for example, there's an electrical contractor that's going up for sale. It's not on the market yet, but it's a good business where they do service work and, you know, homeowners, you know, call these people up to get something fixed or to get a new panel put in, that kind of thing. And that business produces like between 100 and 150 grand every year for its owner. And they have a bunch of service vans like that to me is a solid kind of business to be in because you're not, you're not tendering. Right. I I don't really like businesses that have to bid for their work because usually you're talking about buyers who are like, if, if, if you're tendering to a big enough company, they have a professional purchaser. Right. So that purchaser already knows what it should cost. And if you try to push your price too high, they're going to go looking for another bid right? So it's really hard for companies that do large scale new construction to really develop any kind of goodwill because there's this competitive market force that's keeping them in line with the kind of margins that they can get. If if you're a homeowner and you called an electrician three years ago because something wasn't working right, and then you have a problem again, you call that same electrician, they come over, they fix it, they give you a bill for 280 bucks. Well, you don't know if it sh- you could have had it done for 120 by someone else. Maybe you could, but you knew the company, you trusted the company and you knew that they would come over when they said, right. I mean, it's funny when you talk about electricians because when I used to own the apartments, um, I would go looking for the cheapest electrician mm-hmm. sometimes, but then you'd have to go meet them. And then sometimes they wouldn't show up and you'd end up with all this hassle and running around wasted waste of time. And then someone said to me, um, you know, uh, hey, have you ever tried Netco? And so I called up Netco Electric, and there's probably other companies like this, but I would just call up Netco and i say, my tenant is having this problem. They live here. Here's their phone number. And Netco would call them and make their own appointment with my tenant. Nice. And I was like, ooh, this is interesting. Yeah, It costs more and I'm saving hours of my own time.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: I never went to anyone else after that. Right? And so like there's, there's different offerings in the market for different people who have different motivations. You know, someone who has a very low income who doesn't have a lot of money to spend, it's worth their time to find the lowest price for somebody whose time is more valuable. It may not be, you know, you go with a more, same thing happened with me with plumbing. You know, I eventually went with one of the bigger names in town because of the same thing. They would make their own appointments with my tenants saved a bunch of my time. I was spending my time earning more money doing my own thing. Um, but that electrical contractor that's going to be coming up and it's not, it's not Netco. It's not even a Moncton, but um, you know, that's a good solid business. And it really should only be purchased by somebody who's in the field, who has a license. Yeah. Right? Nice. Because if, if you bought that business and you weren't an electrician and you didn't have a license you could be held hostage by some of your employees.
0: Yeah. They, they say that they're going to leave or go on strike, for example, then your hands are tied, right? It's probably yeah. a little bit harder to find, especially now like skilled trades. It's, it's pretty hard to find some people.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this is why I get back to that initial point that I made is if you're going to buy a business, you should know something about the business. And you can actually get paid to acquire industry knowledge. Um, Many years ago, many, many years ago, back in 2011, uh, I sold the Dixie Lee on Mountain Road. And it's, it's a very successful business back then. I don't know what it's doing now. I assume it's doing well now. But I got all kinds of people that came in to talk to me about it. And all they were looking at was the numbers. And these were like, people that worked at banks, government, power commission, et cetera. And they just came in and all they saw was the numbers. And um, I would say to them, like, have you ever worked in fast food? Mm -hmm. Most of them hadn't. I would say, why don't you go get a job at McDonald's part-time and find out what it's like to be in this kind of environment? Because the guy who owned it at the time, he would work there every day. Like he had burns on his forearms from like grease from the French fry machine. Like real work every day to make sure that that place was functioning properly. And it's it's some people get the idea when they see numbers on a on a piece of paper they they think oh my god that's so much money they have they imagine themselves as Scrooge McDuck with his money pit you know swimming in the gold coins. And it's it's not like that for a lot of these businesses. You have to be there to watch and to make sure things are functioning properly. Uh, An owner who doesn't know what they're doing, who doesn't have proper systems and control, will soon have employees that are doing very well. You know, um, Rick Nicholson is a guy around here in town who has owned many different restaurants, and he actually had a book out at one time. And I think it was it had a it had a coy name. It was like 85 ways to steal from your employer or something like that. And it, it was like written in the form of a guidebook for employees in a restaurant of how to steal money from their employer. And it was like all the different things that they could do to, to uh, line their own pockets. And, of course, he was able to write that book because he had been on the other end of a lot of those tricks. Yeah, that sucks.
0: What would be an example of a couple of businesses that you would have had your hands in or been involved in that would be examples of fairly passive
1: businesses? I hesitate to say anything really is a passive business. You know, I've written books that are up for sale on Amazon. If I wasn't appearing on podcasts and doing my YouTube channel, I probably wouldn't be selling any. Right. But pe- people would point to that as a passive form of income because I wrote the books once and I, they get sold all the time. But it's really not because the, the effort is in the promotion, right? Um, I, I know someone who owns some McDonald's restaurants and he doesn't manage any of them, but he still works full time. Um, and he's looking at numbers and he's looking at his, you know, cameras screens and he's looking at the performance reports and he's talking with his managers and he's looking at his purchasing like all day long spent in a, in a functional role, managing his restaurants, even though McDonald's has probably got to be the, the most classic example of a franchise that's supposed to be run by a set of procedures that any what, what is the expression, you know, a multi-billion dollar empire run by teenagers, right? And, and um, but it's really not. If, if he wasn't there every day with his eye on the ball, the performance of those restaurants would go down.
0: Okay. Yeah, so I guess there's no real examples. Everybody always strives to invest into these businesses or even real estate where like they're truly hands-off, but like.
1: If you want a truly hands-off investment then you have to acquire a business where you have a qualified professional management team already in place. And in my opinion, the only way to really know that you're doing that is to buy the shares of a publicly traded company, like buy shares in Rogers. Now all the people that are there running it, they know what they're doing, right. Or Coca-Cola or what have you. That's why that market exists is because people want to be a part owner of an outfit where they really don't have to do anything. And then you could even argue that the really big investors, like you know the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, when they buy shares of something like Coca-Cola, they buy so much of it that they actually employ someone to sit there and study Coca-Cola oh. because they want to know what's going on with their investment. They want to be able to have the capacity to second guess what the management is doing to try to foresee if there might be problems that they maybe want to exit that investment.
0: Smart, though. Smart for them to do that kind of stuff. Hey, they owned some real estate here in town too at one point.
1: The the big pension funds own a lot of stuff. I, I was doing business with someone in Colorado, and an oil company like that owns a series of oil wells was just bought by the Canada Pension Plan. He told me about it. It was in the newspaper there. So all of us, as uh, you know, people who've contributed to the CPP, now own those oil fields in Colorado. Nice, yeah. Anyways, man,
0: I, uh, I'm a bit out of my, um, level of expertise on this particular topic. So I don't have like an unlimited amount of questions per se for myself, but, uh, if anybody else had some questions that they wanted to put into the chat, now would probably be the time, because I would say we're probably going to be wrapping it up shortly, not necessarily right away, but, um, I'll do another message on the chat just with a test message. That way you can see like where it populates but that's probably the best place to be putting it. Do you see that notification come up yourself? I do.
1: Yeah. I've got the chat window open. Uh, Okay. You're used to this. Anyways. Listen, you know what I learned in the pandemic? I learned that I've been self-isolating for five years. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting here on Zoom, like that's, that's what I've been doing for a long time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So do you find like, for the most part, your business is just like podcast interviews, studying podcast interviews, studying?
1: No, most of my business is talking one-on-one with people doing deals. Like the big, um, the big thing that's happened is this truly the, a K-shaped recovery, if you know what I mean. Like there was a big drop with the lockdowns and everything last year. And then some businesses have done well and really recovered and other businesses are still struggling. Um, And what I personally believe is happening is that I I thought that at the end of 2019, we were in line to have a recession starting in 2020. I didn't predict COVID, but I thought that things looked like we were at the end of our string. and then COVID happened. And then we, it was a recession. I mean, a third of the economy closed. Right. Um, But then all these government programs came in. And so There were deals. I was working on a deal with a client up in Ottawa to buy a marginal business that just wasn't making any money. They were going to buy it and redevelop it. A lot of restaurants sell on this basis. Someone wants to open a new Greek restaurant. It's cheaper to buy a failing Italian restaurant and redecorate it, right? Because all the plumbing, electrical kitchen, everything's already there. And so these guys were looking at buying one of these marginal businesses. COVID hits. And all of a sudden, Justin Trudeau is paying 75% of the wages, Well, you can imagine that marginal business suddenly became very profitable and the sellers didn't want to do the deal. Um, And so this kind of thing has been happening all over the place where people have been able to massage their numbers um, in order, like the, the lease and the wage subsidies were based on a decline of revenue. Well, some businesses to cause their revenue to go down, they just cut their hours and their revenue went down. So they qualified for labor subsidy and rent subsidy in some cases. And so that stuff now is all winding up. And a lot of those marginal businesses now are no longer getting this this public money. So I think a lot of the problems, a lot of the business failures that were set to happen anyway, a year and a half ago, two years ago, are now going to start to unfold before us here now. And so I think that the government assistance, I mean, the reason why the government did all those things was to try to keep the economy going, keep people employed, etc. And they they succeeded. But the businesses that had problems before are, are now going to still face those same problems. And that idea that we were going to have a recession, I think is still potentially there. Big difference is that they printed all this money. So if I had to bet, I would bet that The upcoming years could look a lot like the 1970s. I don't know if there's many people on the call who remember that time, but low growth with inflation. So not necessarily the most exciting economy, Um, but I think that if I had the choice between being a business owner or being an employee, I would much rather face that kind of economy with a business where I had a multitude of different things I could do to try to maneuver and and change and pivot to try to stay profitable rather than just go home every night, hoping my boss was able to do all that for me.
0: With that perspective, what would be like one of the, either the top one, two or three industries that you'd be looking at?
1: I, I get this question all the time and I can't really answer it because again, it comes down to the individual and what the individual knows and what their experience is and what they're interested in. Um, you know, if you're not interested in a given sector or given industry, I don't think you should be in it. Like nothing would be worse to me than going to a business every day that I had no interest in. Right. That's a good point. No, you, you have to be excited and interested in your business. Um, Even if you just get excited and interested in giving great customer service and helping people like, you know, there are different things that people get excited about. But if you can't stand the business that you're in, your employees will feel it and the customers will feel it. And eventually you're going to have an impact on the numbers.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You've always got a smart answer. It's not necessarily what people want to hear,
1: but I, hey, Sean, I wrote, it, I wrote it, it all down. Sean. I'm just reading from notes.
2: Oh. <laughs> you should yeah. open the pizzeria with uh, crustless pizza, Sean. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, Make millions. Already, we already have to determined uh, but yeah. Anyways, um, maybe you wanted to talk a little bit by closing up and saying like how people could reach out to you and.
1: Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I should promote myself, right? I'm in business. Um, so the easiest way to reach me is uh, to go to my blog at davidcbarnett.com. And from there, there are links to different YouTube playlists and my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and just look up David C. Barnett, you'll find me at any podcast app. If you look up David C. Barnett, small business, you'll find me. Um, what I do, I release a video every week that answers someone's question that they've submitted. And right now there's like, over five years worth of those videos on there. So if you really want to get lost, if there's a uh, a bad storm over the course of a week, you can really sit home and just watch me for the whole week if you want. Um, and then on the audio, I just ripped the audio from the YouTube videos, but I often get invited to go onto different podcasts. And sometimes those hosts will let me put the audio onto that podcast feed too. So sometimes we have some interesting discussions and you get to hear other people and For people that are interested in business, that's a great way to find other podcasts that are speaking to you. And, you know, this is one thing I've learned, guys, about, about business and about investing is that the big media personalities, right? There's a lot of money that goes into making them big media personalities, and that creates an agenda, a certain agenda. And so if you want to learn about investing and you're watching like Dave Ramsey, like who pays for Dave Ramsey or who pays for Susie Orman, right? All of the stuff behind those people has an impact on the messages that they're doing. If you get into the world of podcasting, where you talk to smaller people who are actually doing things and working on deals and talking to interesting people that have done deals, you're going to find a lot of tons of stuff out there where like a thousand people have listened to that recording but it's a really great recording you can actually learn from versus someone who's going to be talking to you about their strategic leadership vision at the multi-million-dollar company. You know, a lot of that high level discussion about business and management and what Elon Musk thinks you, you can't apply Elon Musk's tweets to your small business. Like it, the perspective he has and the stuff he's talking about is a whole different world. You know, I, I once talked with a guy who, had a, a, you know, it was a pretty small business, but it still did a couple million dollars a year in revenue. And he thought that hiring this guy that worked in a much larger business was going to be his key to growth. And so he hired this vice president guy out of a big company and he paid him like a $200,000 salary. And he was useless because in the big company, he would make these strategic decisions. And then they had all these other people under him that would implement. And in the small business, that's, that staff, that entourage wasn't there. He was expected to implement, right? And he actually didn't have the skills. And it took a year to find this out. And so you want to be talking with the people that are at or just ahead of you in your own journey.
0: No, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, you're a local guy here. Most of the people that are chiming in are local also. So it makes sense that they reach out to you. And at the same time, like you've been doing this since what you said, two thousand eight. So like we've got years of experience behind you.
1: Well, but but not just me. Like you know, if you if you listen to some of the podcasts I appear on, you're going to meet some of these other hosts who have great shows that that you might find useful to consume as well. And that's what I mean when you get into the weeds, when you get away from the big billboard top line sort of people. There's a ton of really great information. Uh, You just have to go looking for it. And, um, you know, I I just think we live in such an exciting time because never before have people had access, you know, to be able to find all this stuff. I remember the first, before I got into business financing, I would find, you know, these like ads in the back of magazines or uh, these websites that would advertise like a certain book and you had to like pay money and it would come in the mail and all this kind of thing. Mm. And it was so much work to try to get information that wasn't readily available, you know, about different ideas and different ways of doing things. And nowadays with the way the internet is and, you know, Kindle and like online publishing and everything, it's like, everything is readily available. You can get access to it. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's an exciting time.
0: Who would be, you know, one or two of the key people that you look up to for advice?
1: Like there's one business show called the how of business hosted by Henry Lopez. He's in Florida now. He used to be in Texas, but Henry and his partner owned car washes and frozen yogurt shops. And every week he's talking to someone about small business operations, dealing with staff, hiring, uh, ways to make your workplace more um, inviting to hourly wage earning employees, things like that. So it's like real actual nuggets of information for someone who's operating a main street business, right? And um, so that would be that would be one example. Um, if you for people who want to buy a business, there's my show, but there's one that I just appeared on recently called uh, "Let's Buy a Business with Ryan Condy." Ryan has built and sold several businesses. And now is on the journey to buy another one. And he just started to document his, his journey by doing a podcast. Again, most of the podcasts he does have a few hundred downloads. So it's not really popular, but you get these honest perspectives and real world examples of what happens and not only the best stuff or the highlight reel, if you get to what I mean.
0: That's yeah, real examples, right? Something that people around here will probably go through that same process.
1: Yeah yeah it makes sense right, man. thanks for having me on sean no thanks for coming on we uh